Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, where freedom is proclaimed throughout the land. And we're bringing you what we call the American view of law and government, very simply put by our founders in the Declaration of Independence. There is a creator God, and that's the God of the Bible. Secondly, our rights come from him. And the third point is the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two scholars and gentlemen with me this morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremia, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given Second Amendment rights, which, wait, they're God-given. They don't actually come from the Second Amendment. By the way, Mike has a great show just before ours on Friday morning at 7 a.m., so tune in. Uh, to Mike G. in the morning, the law matters. Well, we have just completed a monumental task studying all 85 Federalist Papers and 85 Anti-Federalist Papers. And and this morning, we're going to launch on a new study. And that's really the background for those Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers, and actually the background for our United States Constitution. And it's the first form of government we had at the federal level, and that's called the Articles of Confederation. A lot of people haven't heard about it, and they they say the Constitution was from the beginning. No, it was not. The very first form of federal government was these Articles of Confederation we're about to study. And the Articles were what were being critiqued and criticized by the Federalists saying, hey, hey, we need a better system. And their proposed Constitution, they said, was a better system. Uh, They called it a more perfect union. In other words, they said there was problems, there was imperfections in the articles that they were perfecting. And so actually to help understand our current constitution, it's extremely valuable to study the Articles of Confederation because you'll actually find there's language in the Articles of Confederation that was just borrowed wholesale and plopped into our constitution. And therefore, the founders, having already wrestled with the Articles of Confederation, understanding what it means, what they understood those words and those phrases to mean in the Articles of Confederation were the same meaning they understood they had in the Constitution. Therefore, it's better to look at the Articles of Confederation and understand what those words meant there than it is to look at the uh, scribblings and ink blots that are spilled by judges on pieces of paper 200 years later claiming they know what the founders meant. No, no, no. We can go back and find out what the founders meant uh, when we look at what they wrote and they they, uh, drafted and ratified in the Articles of Confederation. And then uh, subsequently, what pieces of the Articles of Confederation were adopted wholesale into our United States Constitution, as well as uh, what changes did they make from the Articles of Confederation to the U.S. Constitution to make the improvements that they were that they were offering. So it's very helpful to study the Articles of, of Confederation as as a whole. So Phil, why don't you kick us off this morning uh, by your first shot at the Articles of Confederation, Article One through Four? Well, I'd like to make some introductory uh, thoughts first, and then get into Articles One to Four. Um, concerning the introductory thoughts. The Lee Resolution of the Second Continental Congress called for both the drafting of a Declaration of Independence from Britain and the drafting of a constitution for a confederation among the 13 former colonies. The committee was formed with one representative from each former colony, 
chaired by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Now, Dickinson was one of the outstanding figures in the founding period. He had written letters from a for- farmer in Pennsylvania protesting the Townsend Acts. He drafted the first or the, the last attempt to reconcile the colonies with the crown, the so-called Olive Branch Petition that infuriated John Adams, who believed that separation from Britain was inevitable. George III refused to read the petition or receive the envoys from the Continental Congress, choosing instead to resolve the differences through force of arms. Dickinson was no Tory, however, serving as a militia officer during the War of Independence. And Wikipedia tells the story of his creating the Articles of Confederation. Dickinson prepared the first draft of the Articles of Confederation in 1776, after others had ratified the Declaration of Independence over his objection that it would lead to violence and to follow through on his view that the colonies would need a governing document to survive war against them. It has been suggested that Dickinson's desire for reconciliation with the British crown resulted from pressure from his mother and wife, both Quakers. Yet Dickinson never joined the Quaker meeting as he believed in the natural right of defense of war. John Dickinson's story sheds light on the differences among those who ultimately played major roles in the founding of the United States. By the end of July 1778, 10 states had ratified the Articles. And by May 1789, 12 states had ratified, leaving Maryland the sole state holdout until 1781. History.com offers this explanation. Small states with big neighbors and no land claims, Delaware, New Jersey, and Maryland, still refused to ratify. Maryland held out the longest, only ratifying the articles after Virginia relinquished its claims on land north of the Ohio River to Congress. The articles finally took effect on March 1, 1781. The Office of the Historian website provides another perspective on Maryland's ratifying the articles. Irked by Maryland's recalcitrance, several other state governments passed resolutions endorsing the formation of a national government without the state of Maryland. But other politicians, such as Congressman Thomas Burke of North Carolina, persuaded their governments to refrain from doing so, arguing that without unanimous approval of the new confederation, the new country would remain weak, divided, and open to future foreign intervention and manipulation. Meanwhile, in 1780, British forces began to conduct raids on Maryland communities in the Chesapeake Bay. Alarmed, the state government wrote to the French minister on César de la Luzerne, asking for French naval assistance. Luzerne wrote back, urging the government of Maryland to ratify the Articles of Confederation. Marylanders Marylanders were given further incentive to ratify when Virginia agreed to relinquish its Western land claims. And so the Maryland legislature ratified the Articles of Confederation on March 1, 1781. The timing was auspicious. Other than the King, King's Mountain victory by the Patriots in October 1780, the war had gone badly in the South. Matters changed in 1781. 
The Battle of Calpens occurred on January 17th, and Maryland ratified the Articles of Confederation on March 1. Apparently, there is no cause-effect relation between the two events. As a result of the Battle of Calpens, an exhausted, supply-depleted Cornwallis realized his troops could not reach the safety of Wilmington, Delaware, marching to Yorktown, Virginia instead. The destination proved fatal to the British cause, with Cornwallis surrendering to the Continental Forces at Yorktown on October 19, 1781. Essentially, the War of Independence was over, although another two years would be required before a peace treaty was signed in Paris. It was time to start planning now how to govern the new nation instead of conducting war. Traditionally, historians have dismissed government under the Articles as weak. Typical of this treatment are these comments at the Office of the Historian website. The Articles created a sovereign national government and as such limited the rights of the states to conduct their own diplomacy and foreign policy. However, this proved difficult to enforce as the national government could not prevent the state of Georgia from pursuing its own independent policy regarding Spanish Florida, attempting to occupy disputed territories and threatening war if Spanish officials did not work to curb Indian attacks or refrain from harboring escaped slaves. Nor could the Confederation government prevent the landing of convicts that the British government continued to export to its former colonies. In addition, the Articles did not allow Congress sufficient authority to enforce provisions of the 1783 Treaty of Paris that allowed British creditors to sue debtors for pre-revolutionary debts, an unpopular clause that many state governments chose to ignore. Consequently, British forces continued to occupy forts in the Great Lakes region. These problems, combined with the Confederation government's ineffectual response to Shays' rebellion in Massachusetts, convinced national leaders that a more powerful central government was necessary. This led to the Constitutional Convention that formulated the current Constitution of the United States. Certainly, some of this can be acknowledged, but on the whole, it is simplistic. The Articles did not create a sovereign national government, but a federation with specific powers and limitations, just as the Constitution of 1787 following it had done. It is pure speculation that the other events would not have occurred had the Constitution been in place. What is not contested is that the states were strongly interested in maintaining their own sovereignty and granting fed, uh, the Federation only those powers that seem necessary to provide a united front against aggressive foreign nations. Indeed, the War of Independence had demonstrated clearly that European occupation of land in the United States was a costly and futile exercise. The British might overstay their welcome at the Great Lakes forts, finally these forts in 1796, as a result of the Jay Treaty of 1794 that also provided for payment of debts incurred by Americans to British merchants before the American Revolution. This seems to be a convincing argument by the Federalists, but assumes that similar negotiations could not have occurred under the Articles of Confederation government. 
nor does it acknowledge that even under the Constitution, it took another nine years to remove the British from those forts. Let's take a look at the Articles of Confederation preamble. The preamble to the Articles of Confederation refers to Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, a contradiction with the Constitution of 1787, which replaced it with a claim of being a more perfect union. The idea of a more of more perfection is a logical absurdity. But that may have been compelled by the need to justify replacing a perpetual union, which itself is a contradiction in law. In 1788, when New Hampshire ratified the Constitution of 1787 and 11 states voted to secede from that union, the perpetual union was no more. Of course, that did not prevent Abraham Lincoln during the war between the states from insisting that the new union was perpetual and once having joined it, no state was allowed to secede. Let's take a look at Article 1, the style of the Confederacy. <clears throat> Article 1 merely names the new government entity. The style of this Confederacy shall be the United States of America. Simple as that statement might sound, it contradicts the Office of Historian website, which claims that the Articles created a sovereign national government. There's no mention of a sovereign national government in Article 1. To the contrary, Article 1 only mentions the creation of a confederacy. A confederation or federation is not a national government, the latter implying that the entities forming the government are subdivisions of the national government. Consider the concluding paragraph in the Declaration of Independence, which includes this thought. These United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Article 1 may be the first official reference to the Confederation as the United States of America. Article 2 states, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom and independence, and every power, jurisdiction and right, which is not by this Confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. Again, this is an absolute contradiction to the Office of Historian website. Article 2 affirms that the states remain sovereign and that only limited powers were granted to the Confederation government. This is the principle of limited enumerated powers, which carried over to the Constitution of 1787. Article 3 states, The said states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, their mutual and general welfare, binding themselves to assist each other against all force offered to or attacks made upon them or any of them on account of religion, sovereignty, trade, or any other pretense whatever. Notice the three reasons for the creation of the Confederation. The first, common defense. The second, securing liberties. And the third, mutual and general welfare. The first two reasons should have been universally understood. The third, mutual and general welfare, is undefinable and the source of potential mischief as politicians claim to be acting under the principle of the general welfare as they violate 
constitutions they swear to uphold. This was an article's weakness that was injected into the Constitution where it caused far greater damage. Article 4 states, the better to secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states in this union, the free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice accepted, shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. And the people of each state shall have free ingress and regress to and from any other state and shall enjoy therein all the privileges of trade and commerce subject to the same duties, impositions, and restrictions as the inhabitants thereof respectively, provided that such restrictions shall not extend so far as to prevent the removal of property imported into any state to any other state of which the owner is an inhabitant, provided also that no imposition, studi- duties, or restriction shall be laid by any state on the property of the United States or either of them. Notice that the privileges and immunities of citizenship were available to free inhabitants of each of these states, and that paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice were to be excluded. Under the Constitution, the restriction about paupers and vagabonds was subsequently eliminated. As for the Constitution that followed, the Articles of Confederation were somewhat silent about slave citizenship, although the intent was quite clear since slaves were not free inhabitants of the United States. There was also the concept of free ingress to and regress from any state, and that these citizens retained all the privileges of trade and commerce subject to the same duties, impositions, and restrictions as the inhabitants thereof, respectively. These restrictions had two limitations, the first of which was, provided that such restrictions shall not extend so far as to prevent the removal of property imported into any state, to any other state, of which the owner is inhabitant. That seems to say that a citizen of Pennsylvania rode into Delaware, and then, if, if a citizen of Pennsylvania rode into Delaware, and then to Maryland, his horse and saddle could be seized at the Delaware-Maryland border, since he was a citizen of Pennsylvania and not Maryland. On the other hand, if a citizen of Pennsylvania took public transportation to go to Wilmington, where he bought a horse and saddle, these too could be seized at the Delaware-Pennsylvania border since they had not been imported into Delaware. The second restriction is also confusing, provided also that no imposition, duties, or restriction shall be laid by any state on the property of the United States or either of them. The first part is clear. The United States, where the owner of state, could not impose duties or any other restrictions on that property. But what does it mean by, or either of them? That the Articles of Confederation contain weaknesses should not be disputed. But they probably are not the weaknesses conveyed to our young people in the government-run school systems. 
Thank you, Phil. And that's a great analysis to help us understand why actually during almost the entirety of the war, obviously the war didn't conclude until uh, 1783 with the Treaty of Paris, but uh, up to 1781, the Battle of Yorktown, during the entirety of that time, really the Articles of Confederation were not functioning. It's only the last few months of the war, or the active part of the war that they were, uh, because Maryland was holding out, hoping to, uh, I guess, get a better deal because that land issue was huge in, in the minds, not only of Maryland, but as you mentioned, Delaware and New Jersey as well. Well, when we look at the Articles of Federation, it's very helpful to be able to compare and contrast what we see in our United States Constitution. So, for example, our United States Constitution, we know, begins, we the people of the United States, and so on. Whereas the uh, beginning of the Articles of Confederation, the article, uh, Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. In other words, it was a clear compact between each one of the 13 original states uh, that were formed following uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence. Whereas our Constitution was not formed with a unity of all 13 states. In fact, they all knew there in Philadelphia it was very unlikely that uh, Rhode Island would participate at all. Rhode Island hadn't sent any, anyone to the convention, and Rhode Island uh, sent a letter of objection, basically, uh, at the conclusion of the convention, September 17th, 1787. But uh, they agreed that as soon as nine states ratified this constitution, it would become effective for those nine states that they would be forming a new government. So really, our constitution was formed on, a, on an agreement that we have to agree to disagree and agree to part and go separate ways uh, because they were already seeing that Rhode Island would not join them. And by the way, it wasn't just Rhode Island, uh, North Carolina uh, remained outside the new union, remained under the Articles of Confederation for about a year, a little over a year and a half there, uh, where Rhode Island was almost two years that, that it stayed outside. So there was a difference here because it, it was an acknowledgement that there was not going to be a unity, which is kind of interesting because the Confederate uh, Articles of Confederation say this confederacy shall be the United States of America. And indeed, our U.S. Constitution speaks of the people of the United States. Now, we need to understand that our founders were not putting down in the, the U.S. Constitution the list of each of the states as they did here in the Articles of Confederation because they knew Rhode Island probably wasn't going to sign on and they knew that they had no authority they had been given no authority to speak on behalf of their states and commit their states to the ratification of this proposed uh, constitution. Whereas with the Articles of Confederation, it was not activated until all 13 states. They said, we want all 13 states to be part of this from the get-go. And in fact, one of the weaknesses we might argue for that was that they also said, no amendments can take place of these Articles of Confederation unless all 13 states agree to those amendments. And of course, we know that that was, in a sense, the straw that broke the camel's back when it came uh, time to propose uh, amendments that uh, couldn't be proposed because Rhode Island would not participate. Now, the very important point that Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation puts forward is that each state retains its sovereignty. That is, no state is surrendering any sovereignty 
to this uh, Articles of Confederation government. And the only thing that they're doing by this is that they're giving power and jurisdiction and right that is expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. In other words, we're only allowing Congress to do very specific, limited things, and those things are very clearly spelled out in the Articles of Confederation. And that, by the way, is the same idea of our Constitution. In fact, the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution was put in to be sure that this same understanding was carried from the Articles of Confederation to our United States Constitution, that we, the people in our states— uh, we retain our sovereignty. In fact, our state constitution of Maryland makes it very plain that we are a sovereign, free, independent state. We belong within the United States because we've agreed to some limited delegated jurisdiction and, and power that the federal government has to do certain things and only those things. And if it's not part of the agreement, that is, if we didn't sign off and say, hey, we're going to give the federal government, oh, let's say, uh, oh, the power over the education of the children in America. That if we didn't say that, then the federal government has no power over the education of the children in America. And that's exactly the conception, not only of the Articles of Confederation, but also of our United States Constitution. Sadly, a conception that has been dearly lost in our day. And today, most of which probably 90%, at least from the Heritage Foundation study, 90% of what the federal government does in Washington, D.C., is violative of that very principle. In other words, 90% of what the federal government does today, we never gave them permission to do. Think of it this way. You know, if you uh, got tired of cutting your grass one, one week and decide, yeah, I'm going to hire that kid down the block, you know, I, we, we'll cut an agreement and every week he's going to come over, cut the grass and so forth, and I'll pay him X amount of dollars for doing so. Now, imagine one day you come back home and, and not just that grass was cut, but you saw a painting project beginning uh, to change the entire color of your house. And you say, what's going on here? And you go talk to the kid and say, what are you doing? I never granted you permission to do anything but to cut the grass. That was our contract. That was our agreement. Why are you painting the house? And obviously you'd fire him. Because he's insubordinate, he's breaking the contract, he's doing things that you never gave him power to do. And that's exactly what we see our federal government doing today. But the Articles of Confederation gives us that understanding even with greater clarity than does our U.S. Constitution. But the understanding and the meaning of that is preserved not only in the body of our U.S. Constitution, but especially in the Tenth Amendment. Each state retains its sovereignty, its freedom, its independence. In other words, we have gathered together, as in this at that point in the Articles of Confederation, 13 separate governments, 13 separate countries, you almost might say. We've gathered together for some very limited purposes. Of course, we're going to see in the Articles of Confederation, those purposes were for trade among the states. Those purposes were for defense when attacked at time of war. So there was limited purposes, but they were not surrendering their sovereignty. Today, that idea not only has been lost, most of the state governments no longer retain their sovereignty. They, they have it on paper. In fact, if they chose to stand up to the, the, the tyrannical government, they could. I understand in Florida there's an interesting thing going on regarding the IRS. I forgot if it's the uh, attorney general of the state or one of the other officials of the state has proposed uh, legislation that would license 
IRS agents in the state of Florida. That is, to function in the state of Florida, they would have to have a license from the government of Florida. And the state of Florida would evaluate maybe these 87,000 thugs that they're hiring and trained with weapons to go, uh, you know, break into people's houses like they did at Mar-a-Lago. That was not the F- that was the FBI, not the IRS. But that kind of action that the state of Florida could say, ah, we don't like this. This is wrong. This is unconstitutional. We're going to pull the license of these IRS agents. They cannot do this in Florida. And I applaud that. And I hope that Florida carries it through. And I hope every state in the union carries it through to get back to this idea that we, the people, are the sovereigns in our states and our state government is there to serve the interest of protecting our God-given rights. And when we see the federal government violating those God-given rights and violating the contract, our Constitution, then we, the people, need to push back and reassert the sovereignty, freedom, and independence of every state. Now, the purpose, as Phil, you clearly pointed out in Article 3, is enter a firm league of friendship with each other, common defense, Security of liberties, and by the way, that's liberty from oppression by government as well. In other words, security of our God-given rights is what they are referring to there, the security of liberties, and mutual and general welfare. That is, something is decided, but everyone must benefit from that, not as a welfare class. We're going to benefit one group of people based on whatever categorization. No, only all ships must rise with the tide. No uh, one ship can benefit over the others. And then they said binding themselves to assist each other against all force offered or attacks made upon them. So defense was the big focus here. And obviously they were in the midst of a war. <laughs> this was a war against Great Britain, the mightiest power, powerful army and the mightiest navy in the world of that day. They needed one another. And the ironic thing is because Maryland held out that it wasn't until the year the war essentially ended with Yorktown, even though the treaty was a few years later. It wasn't until that year that the articles actually became fully active. So they were struggling under uh, you know, a, a voluntary agreement that wasn't completely uh, agreed to at this point in time during the entirety of, of the war. And Article 4 highlights that they want to better secure and perpetuate the mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states. And so this is uh, granting full faith and credit, uh, allowing those who are uh, charged with a crime in one state to be extradited if they have fled from justice to another state. And this whole whole idea of full faith and credit given to each of the states was, again, all of these elements were also in our United States Constitution. So it is very helpful to see the wisdom with which Uh, Those who crafted the Articles of Confederation dealt with the issues. They dealt with them so well in many respects that many of those same phrases and and definitely those same ideas were incorporated in our United States Constitution. Well, Mike, uh, probably it's difficult to find much research in terms of case law uh, regarding the Articles of Confederation, because I doubt that many cases at all bother to quote it because, well, that's the old Constitution. We're now under the United States Constitution. But share with us any thoughts you have or even any uh, issues of what's take, taking place in, in uh, current events uh, regarding our Constitution and our God-given rights. Thank you, Pastor Whitney. And taking a look and in, in researching some of this, there actually is a pretty interesting scholarly article regarding 
cases that have cited the Articles of Confederation. And it's called The Concise Guide to the Articles of Confederation as a Source for Determining the Original Meaning of the Constitution by Gregory E. Maggs from George Washington University School of Law. And at his, the time that he performed a search for the Articles of Confederation, he estimated that were, there were over 150 uh, Supreme Court cases for guidance in determining the meaning of the Constitution. I don't know because he did, what didn't specify. Uh, this is the Supreme Court database. He said that it showed 175. If you go even broader than that, and you look even into some of the state law cases that have cited it and some of the lower federal court cases, not even the trial court, but including the Court of Appeals, uh, just in the Third Circuit here, you get much more than that. Uh, you get around 261 for that alone. And if you include all federal cases, meaning from all jurisdictions, you actually get over 700. So there have been cases that have mentioned the Articles of Confederation. I don't know how... Wow, uh, that, that's, a, be to, that's a pleasant yeah. surprise. Yeah, I, well, unfortunately, I don't know how relevant they'll be to our discussions moving forward. <laughs> uh, but I'll give you an idea of the type of thing that they, they typically do, at least in the Supreme Court, when they cite the Articles of Confederation. What they're really looking for are distinctions here, because they're looking for uh, reasons they can point to the Constitution and, and find its meaning by distinguishing it from what they had with the Articles of Confederation. And ultimately, I, I was, couldn't help but thinking about this when you were bringing up your lawn mowing example. Uh, but when you had McCulloch versus Maryland, you were looking at whether Congress had implied powers. And in the ultimate analysis by the Supreme Court of the United States, Chief Justice Marshall uh, concluded that by removing the word expressly, and when they talked about how the Articles of Confederation limited Congress to powers expressly delegated by the Articles, because the word expressly was not in the Constitution, uh, he reasoned, quote, the men who drew and adopted this amendment had experienced the embarrassments resulting from the insertion of this word in the Articles of Confederation and probably omitted it to avoid, to avoid those embarrassments. And that comes from uh, that McCulloch versus Maryland case. So by removing it, you have the court saying that Congress does have all sorts of implied powers. <laughs> and, I, and when I'm thinking about your example, the guy who would say, well, uh, you know, when you told me to mow the lawn, it was implied that I could paint the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, of oh, course. Why, uh, but really, the argument that we see as a, pr a practical matter today isn't even and whether or not they have the implied power, it goes a step further as to whether painting the house would be a good idea. <laughs> and it, it seems like they would be the, the argument, if you compare it with the lawnmower saying, you know what, Pastor Whitney, your house, it really needed to be painted. Think of how much nicer it's going to look when I painted this new color. And th <laughs> this is really a good idea. <laughs> we just skip past the whole whether or not the authority exists. And we skip to, and this is really in the mind of most voters, unfortunately, uh, whether they think the end result would better be better than the end result otherwise. Uh, so that's <laughs> where, where uh, this whole mess really started. I can see the uh, the reasoning behind looking at the Articles of Confederation uh, for comparison purposes uh, in trying to distinguish uh, certain things and determine the intent. 
But when you have something like this go on, it really opens up a whole new can of worms. Mm, indeed. And, and I, I would wonder, I haven't done the research, but that kind of sparks my interest. Was there a debate? And we'd have to go back to, you know, Madison's notes uh, uh, and, and others who, who kept some notes about the convention. Was there debate over using or deleting that word expressly? And in other words, did they consciously make a decision or they, you know, Maybe from memory, they were just saying, yeah, it should sound like this. And again, I don't right. know the answer to that, but it'd be interesting research to see if there was a debate about, yeah, that word expressly, that's too much. Let's drop that because we want to give implied powers. Now, we know Alexander Hamilton would love that kind of thing because he talked about all sorts of implied powers that the power to coin money means the power to have a national bank. And, of course, Jefferson said, no way. That's not in the text of the Constitution that you can have a national bank. It's, well, Hamilton said, well, it's implied by the fact that you coin money. It's like, well, that's a, in my view, that's a ridiculous argument. Uh, why have a Constitution if you, the government can do whatever it pleases, you know, with unlimited power? I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people often look at uh, the text when they're, they're getting specific like that, and they think that there's no way that somebody – could have erroneously omitted a single word like that. And I, I get why you make that contention, because to assume that things were accidentally left out or uh, they weren't thought about, that really creates a whole nother mess and just <laughs> points out how fallible human beings are, but they're treated as if they're infallible in this context. It reminds me of when New Jersey recodified the crimes code and for a very, very, very long time, slung shots were an illegal weapon in New Jersey. And if you don't know what a slung shot is, <laughs> it's also known as a monkey's fist. It's like no. a steel ball wrapped in leather with a string on it, and you can sort of whack somebody over the head with it. And those were illegal in New Jersey for a very long time. Well, when they recodified the crimes code in the 1970s and they were looking through it, somebody <laughs> had the bright idea of saying, oh, look. They made a typographical error the first time around. That should say slingshot because they didn't know what a slingshot was. <laughs> well, they changed it to slingshot, and now possession of a slingshot in New Jersey is a felony crime of the fourth degree. So, wow! <laughs> Do you have to get a concealed carry permit? <laughs> <laughs> Eighteen months in state prison for Bart Simpson and wow. Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, but you know, and, and we we assume perhaps too much that these folks were infallible. Uh, but if you consider that it was only only seven years that, you know, well, six years that the Articles of Confederation were fully activated from uh, 81 to 87. And so they may not have had those words down in their memory as solidly unless they were looking at the text of the Articles of Confederation. So we may be giving them too much credit to think that they had memorized every word of the Articles of Confederation and so they could recite it verbatim uh, like many could for sections of our Constitution. Certainly not like it is today where you hop on the computer and you've got everything right there in front of you, right? Exactly. Well, that, that, that little research project, by the way, if any of our listeners are interested in taking up that research project, we'd love to communicate with you. My, you can use my email, dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com. That's dwhitney at theamericanview.com. Any if thoughts I, about – go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, if I could leap ahead uh, to the the elimination of the uh, the Articles of Confederation in favor of the, the Constitution of – uh, 1787. Uh, it seems to me that that there were 
three or four major issues that got brought up time after time. Um, one had to do with the funding of the federal debt. And there, there were really two parts to that. The, uh, the one was the, the idea that uh, the United States had lost credit worthiness. Well, you look at uh, the record and what you determine is that it, it had not, that the Netherlands, the, uh, the bankers in the Netherlands looking ahead said, uh, yeah, we'll roll, roll the dice with these guys and uh, had substantially funded uh, the United States of America. Now, uh, were they isolated? Well, yes, for a while, because uh, the British tried uh, sanctions. They thought, well, we couldn't defeat them in the field of battle. Let's see if we could use economic sanctions against them. Well, that didn't work. And it was very apparent very, very quickly to the, the merchants in Britain who wanted to do business with uh, the, the United States, uh, the sanctions weren't going to work. Let's see if we can continue trade with them and extend credit. And by the end of the 1780s, the British had reemerged as the primary uh, nation uh, investing in the United States. And they never lost that position, by the way. So you have that side of the argument. Uh, you, you just have to wonder, you know, uh, was this story completely made up out of pure cloth? Who knows? But then you had a very unusual situation that the uh, federal government uh, uh, was in. And that is that, you know, certainly by the time Virginia conceded those lands north of the Ohio, that it had immense territories that it could use to uh, fund the debt. All they had to do was to sell the land and pay off the debt. And in fact, that did happen over a number of years in spite of Jefferson's buying uh, the uh, uh, Louisiana Purchase and uh, the fact that there was the very expensive War of 1812. By Jackson's administration, we had absolutely no federal debt whatsoever. I mean, if you look over history, I don't think any nation, new nation brought into to be has ever had that luxury. So the, the whole idea that, you know, uh, we were in financial difficulty and therefore we had to we had to create this piece of paper is total nonsense. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the idea of Shays' Rebellion. Uh, this was a big, oh, that's a big weakness. But the state, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had resolved the uh, Shays' Rebellion issue on their own, which is what states were supposed to do. So even that was, was a, a false basis. And, and when we look at the text of the Articles of Confederation, it, it implies that, you know, one state or the group of states could actually help one another uh, in the midst of that. Uh, to better secure, perpetuate mutual friendship intercourse among the people of the different states so that if there is issues going on with a revolution or a revolt taking place, that, uh, you know, the other states in the firm league of friendship with another for their common defense and security of liberties could help the other states. So maybe it's a little more blatantly stated in our U.S. Constitution, but I think it's there 
But you're absolutely right. Shays Rebellion was solved by Massachusetts without any help from any of the other states whatsoever. So uh, there again, uh, another argument that was uh, put forward for why we needed this Constitution uh, falls falls flat on its face. Well, I'm wondering, have either of you heard at all about uh, that proposal in Florida of licensing IRS agents by the state of Florida? I have not heard of it. Okay. Uh, Just curious. I'm wondering whether it's a good idea or whether you should just uh, prevent them from coming into the state, period. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good – that would be a good way to do it. No, no IRS agents. Uh, there was a friend of mine in the state of Georgia that proposed a piece of legislation. God rest his soul. He's now in heaven. But uh, uh, this legislation would essentially put the IRS at a, at a business in the state of Georgia by indemnifying every citizen of the state of Georgia when they paid their taxes – Instead of writing a, a check to the IRS, they would write a check to the state treasury of Georgia. And the state of Georgia would assign a commission. The legislature would put together a commission to study the federal budget and determine what percentage of the federal budget was actually constitutional. Oh, so obviously things like the Department of Education, that's not. EPA, that's not. CIA, that I mean, you could go through a long list of the alphabet agency. Most of the budget's not constitutional. So you get down to whatever percent. Let's, let's say it's 25 percent just for argument's sake. Then the state of Georgia would take the money they've collected from all of their citizens and forward 25 percent to the federal government to pay their portion of what is owed, which was the original design. And as we've studied before in, in our uh, research on the U.S. Constitution, that was the design uh, before it was broken, first broken by Lincoln and then later, obviously, broken uh, in 1913 uh, and, and broken with the World War II and has been broken ever since, where the people are directly taxed on their head, a poll tax on their head. Uh, a capitation tax, which is prohibited in Article One of our Constitution. So, but to return, I, I like what Florida is maybe proposing to begin a return to push in the direction of saying, well, let's get back to constitutional taxation, because indeed that's where so much of the power of the federal government comes from. They take the money directly out of the paycheck of the people before the people even see the money themselves. And then they bribe the states with all these grants and federal funds and road funds and edgy, you know, all the things with enormous amount of strings attached such that the federal government essentially takes control of the policy of each and every state uh, in, in the union, completely in, in contradiction to what our, our, the design of our founders was. And it's a complete violation of economic freedom mm-hmm. when you think of it. I mean, nobody's going to argue, you know, if if government takes a small share to you know, to, to have a, let's say, a standing, um, small standing army to defend us and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, for all of the legitimate things in the Constitution, nobody's going to argue that case. They're not they're not going to die on that hill. But, you know, if you if you look at the average, I think something like 45 to 50 percent of the, the wealth generated by citizens in the United States flows into government coffers. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even if you believe that myth about taxation without representation, something's wrong with those numbers. And the result is tyranny, where, you know, we've got a federal government way out of control, 
obviously doing whatever it pleases. I guess Biden's in some basement somewhere these days, but nobody's seeing him for, what did somebody say, out of the, his first uh, year and a half or whatever, 150 days he was on vacation or something ridiculous like that. It's like, what? Well, yeah, he's obviously not, he's a puppet and uh, they're just pulling his strings. But we have a federal government doing things completely violative of our liberties and our freedoms that are guaranteed by our constitution. And they get away with it because they had this enormous power through the purse. Uh, and uh, you know now that they're gonna double the size of the IRS and increase its budget, I think four times, I think they have a budget of 12 billion currently and now they're gonna have a budget of over $80 billion and uh, you know hire 87,000 thugs. It's like, whoa. We see tyranny on, on, on steroids, you know, and, and basically we see what our founders faced with the, uh, the standing army of King George III breaking into any house they wanted to, which is why we have the Fourth Amendment. You got to have a warrant to do this, but breaking into any house, rifling through people's papers and effects and tyrannizing the people all over the 13 colonies. And uh, what we have is, I believe, that kind of evil rising uh, in, in our midst right now. So, we for, uh, go go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, we ignore the fact that governments have arisen out of conquest. And what was the purpose of conquest? The basic idea was that you would, you would invade a neighboring nation uh, through force of arms, coercion, uh, certainly, and then you would um, exert tribute. Now, tribute is a nicer sounding name, but it, <laughs> it's still nasty, you know. But mm -hmm. basically, the idea was, you know, conquer another nation and then force them into uh, paying taxes. <laughs> you know, what are we doing right now? We don't even have the conquering uh, armies to deal with, but we are paying the tribute. Mm hmm. And if we were to turn to the balance of power that our, our founders envisioned, that the states had the majority of the powers, particularly those things that related to the internal government of the country. And the federal government dealt with external issues, war, uh, trade agreements with other nations, uh, peace treaties and so forth, just the external things. But anything internal was dealt with by the state governments, and that allowed the people the tremendous liberty of voting with their feet. I can't tell you how many families from my church here in Maryland have emigrated out of the state of Maryland. It's all over different places south and largely west because they've seen the tyranny in Maryland. They don't want to live under it. They are choosing liberty and they're voting with their feet. Well, but the problem is you can't vote your, your feet away from the federal tyranny. You can vote your feet away from the you know state tyranny. But the federal tyranny, you cannot escape anywhere in these United States. And that was, again, never the vision of our founders. If the federal government was kept small and limited, which it largely was up until World War I, when we began to move from a republic to an empire, largely Washington, D.C. was small and, and uh, you know, the powers in the states were large. Uh, but that has reversed since World War I and especially after World War II. Uh, where the, the government at, in Washington, D.C. just became huge and gargantuan and a leviathan, and the state governments lost every time you turn around, particularly with FDR. They lost more and more and more and more power until today. You'd say most states are apparently more, mere political subdivisions of, of the federal government with little to no power whatsoever. Well, that's absolutely true. I, I would make one minor exception to that, maybe two. Um, the... the uh, 
uh, war with Spain, Spanish-American war, which is based upon <laughs> a false assumption that that uh, saboteurs had sunk the main. Mm. Uh, uh, that certainly launched the imperial United States. And uh, I think um, Cuba was semi-imperialized, uh, but the Philippines, what we did in the Philippines was just tragic. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a very black mark on, on our, our history, particularly how we, we dealt with the natives there. And our founders never wanted to create an empire. You can read what uh, Sixth President John Quincy Adams said, you know, America does not go around the world seeking monsters to destroy. Whether it's a Saddam Hussein monster or uh, you can name any one of the tin horn dictators, it's not our purpose to see that democracy is spread all over the globe because we're not a democracy and that's not our purpose anyway. But our founders are very clear, we, we avoid foreign entanglements and we're not the policemen of the world. None of those things are the vision of our founders. None of those things are part of our constitution, even as it's been amended to this day. Not one part of that has been changed, and yet we've become the policemen of the world. We've become this enormous empire with military bases in 140 nations of the earth. I think that's just about all of them. You know, This is not our founders' vision, and we the people, when we shifted from a republic to an empire, we the people are the losers. We lost enormous amount of our money, you know, as our taxes increased, and we lost freedoms. We lost liberties. You look at what happened since 9-11 and the loss to our liberties, and now with the COVID insanity, the even greater loss to our medical liberties has just accelerated. And so the purpose for which our government was formed, protect God-given rights, has been turned on its head, and no longer is it protecting our God-given rights. It's destroying uh, those God-given rights, I I I would argue. Militarily, I think the United States is probably the uh, in the best position of any nation on Earth. Um, you know, put yourself in the shoes of poor Luxembourg. I think how many how many uh, uh, nations does it have bordering it? This small nation, um, you know, it, it's just an invitation for armies uh, from other nations to march through that area. Um, look at China and and. Uh, and uh, Russia, both of those nations, even though they're large, um, they do have a large number of potential enemies uh, on their, their borders, I think f- 14 apiece. So we don't have that. We've got, we've got the luxury of the, uh, the largest and second largest uh, oceans in the world bordering our, our shores um, and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we've got a nation to the south a uh, slightly different culture, uh, but not not aggressive in any way towards the United States. Um, in Canada, uh, there's no aggression. We have the largest unguarded border in in the world. So, you know, our needs for defense are not that exceptional. And yet here we are. We've got a budget, a military budget that exceeds something like, and I've seen various estimates of this, anywhere from the next seven to 11 nations in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's wrong. That's simply wrong. That's simply the opposite of our found, founders' view of what should take place. If you do even have a standing army, many of them were very, very leery, some outright opposed to having a standing army, because they understood what a standing army will ultimately be used for. It will be used to abuse the people, maybe the people of another country, or maybe even the people of your own country. 
And they saw that with King George III and his, you know, his his troops on the ground. One of their main objections in the Declaration of Independence, he has kept in time of peace, he has kept a standing army in our midst without the permission of the legislature. That was one of their their, their greatest critiques of, of what uh, King George III had done in violation of the God-given rights of the people. Because we know that a standing army, uh, they want to fight, and they're going to pick a fight somewhere eventually. And uh, you're not going to have, you're going to find there will be some petty tyrant who's going to rise up and is going to use that standing army to the detriment of someone's God-given rights. And in our case, it perhaps is the God-given rights of the people and all those 100-plus nations on Earth. I think one of the curious things that we have seen, particularly in the last uh, several years, is that there's been attempts to use our army to prop up what's called the petrodollar. That was the agreement at Bretton Woods and so forth that, uh, or not Bretton Woods, the agreement with Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC countries uh, made under Nixon, that anybody that wanted to buy any oil anywhere on Earth had to buy it in dollars which means every nation had to get dollars, whether they wanted dollars or not, in order to buy oil. And that's what kept our economy humming in spite of the fact that you know our manufacturing was all taken overseas and the only thing we were exporting was these greenbacks, you know, and the world needed the greenbacks. Well, that petrodollar has now been broken. Uh, the BRICS nations are breaking it and, and other nations are, are joining them and saying, we're gonna trade for oil in all sorts of other currencies, and we're not going to use the dollar any longer. And uh, so that system uh, that our whole whole economy has been based on for oh decades now, three or four decades, is crumbling. And uh, we're going to see the painful increase in prices, the painful inflation that, that results from that. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And I have a friend who's a uh, banking consultant. And he looks at both the, the British system and the uh, European system. And if we think we have things bad here, uh, it's considerably worse there. Uh, they had the same wokeism that we do and maybe maybe even more. And basically, you know, uh, they've said uh, no more fossil fuels to, to heat us and to, to give us power. Well, what are they going to do this winter? <laughs> yeah. Natural law does not, uh, and and uh, natural conditions do not obey political uh, statutes. Uh, those <laughs> people right. are they, they're going to they're going to be in deep trouble this this winter. Yeah, and that hasn't helped that they've decided to. Much of Europe has decided to embargo Russia, which is their supply of uh, uh, gas and, and other other fuels. It's like whoa, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. Yeah, you know, if the the sanctions didn't work against us. Uh, after the the uh, war, the revolution, I don't think they're going to work in this case either. They rarely that's, do. That's right. They rarely do. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. And we encourage you to listen to our podcast. In the past, we have gone through 85 articles or uh, papers of the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalists. And before that, the Declaration of Independence Analysis, Constitution Analysis, Bill of Rights, enormous wealth of material there available for your education at the website 1180WFYL. Just click on podcasts. We're down the very bottom of the list. We the people, the Constitution Matters. And 
about the Articles of Confederation because to understand this helps understand the meaning of our Constitution according to our founders, not according to some judges 200 years later that want to spill ink on paper and say they can tell you what the Constitution means. We the people can take back our government and we do it by understanding the founding documents and taking action based upon those documents. Join us next Friday. We the people, the Constitution matters.